Money Roots is made possible by the support of our sponsor, Rooted Planning Group. Are you ready to take control of your financial future? Look no further than Rooted Planning Group, your trusted partner in financial well-being. At www.rootedpg.com, you'll discover a wealth of resources and expertise to help you thrive financially. Rooted Planning Group specializes in personalized financial planning, investment management, and retirement strategies. They understand that every financial journey is unique, and they're here to guide you every step of the way. With a team of experienced advisors, Rooted Planning Group is committed to helping you cultivate a secure and prosperous future. Visit www.rootedpg.com today to learn more about how Rooted Planning Group can help you grow your money roots. Every week, it's my goal to share a story of someone's journey through their life and financial vineyard. We take you from their roots to the journey of their minds and the influences in the air that have helped craft their delicious lives. Like wine, life and finances have different palettes that should be celebrated and not judged. Welcome to this edition of Wine and Dime with Jim Lochran. Let me uh, just start by saying that when I share my opening every week, I truly believe that. And Jim, as an author, has written a couple of books, as you'll hear mentioned in the podcast. But on his website, what struck me when I was doing research was that he said he writes about wine and life. Well, isn't that what this podcast is all about? So Jim is a writer, a thinker, a drinker, an author, an educator, and a guy who'd like to share glasses of good wine with you. So Jim, I couldn't have thought of anybody better to have on this show that really does embrace the meaning of life. Thank you very much. And we hope as listeners, they all enjoy this show. Sit on back, grab your favorite beverage and enjoy. Well, Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for participating in today's podcast. Uh, for listeners, uh, as you may have heard me say in the, the intro, I always love uh, ending the week when I get to talk about wine. And in Jim's case, he is the author of two books that I know about, maybe more that I missed in my research, but one is 50 Ways to Love Wine More. So the adventures of wine appreciation, <clears throat> does that sound like me? And a second book called A Beer Drinker's Guide to Knowing and Enjoying Fine Wine. So thank you so much for being on the show and uh, ending this week with uh, such a fun topic for me. Well, it's my pleasure. I'm delighted to be here and uh, hope we can have a lot of fun. Oh, I think we will. So, so Jimmy, you don't know an awful lot about me. I'll give you the two second lowdown. I am an amateur wine drinker and I love to practice that craft. <laughs> I, I've never heard that term, but <laughs> it's one of my favorite hobbies. Um, I do. I love, it's about the journey. It's about finding, uh, you know, this little hidden gem of a winery or, um, location, you know, winery that may be out in the middle of absolutely nowhere. Um, maybe a region that, um, people aren't familiar with and, really enjoy the journey of finding a new wine that I really like. But as most people know, when I start this podcast, I really also like to ask the question to the guest if they have a favorite wine that they're drinking right now so that maybe I can go and they can go explore that. 
uh huh. All right, you want to, you want my inside secrets right off the. Mm. <laughs> well, I'll I'll tell you a wine that I've been really enjoying of late is a bit esoteric, and uh, you may have to look uh, to find this wine. It's from uh, Georgia, and it is called. It's a grape called Kisi K I S I, and Georgia is probably the birthplace of wine and wine uh, grape domestication and winemaking uh, in the shadows of the great Caucasus Mountains. Uh, they have a, a technique for making wine that they have uh, followed for probably, we know, at least 8,000 years, which is pretty stunning. And they essentially uh, make wine the same way. So uh, it has a, an entirely different flavor profile than the wines that, that we're usually uh, drinking that, we, that our palates are generally attuned to. Hmm. Yeah. Georgia. I've never had, now I've got to go on my way down to Florida sometime. Now I've got to explore this. I've got to hit this winery. Well, you should. Absolutely. There's, a, there's an importer in Washington, D.C. that uh, carries quite a few of these. And there's also, there are a couple of great restaurants in Washington, D.C. So if you happen to be passing through Washington or by Washington, mm -hmm. uh, look for it. But uh, the technique that they use is, is really quite fascinating. They, they build these great terracotta vessels that are almost the shape of an old style top. If you remember when you were a kid, you had a top and you rent, wanted to string around it and spun it and I may be dating myself here. <laughs> no, I know what you're talking about. Nonetheless, some of these, and they're called quevri. Uh, they are perhaps five or six or eight feet tall. I mean, they are very large vessels that they sink into the ground. They bury them right up to the neck. And when they make wine, they crush the grapes and they pour the the juice and the grape skins and the seeds and the stems and the whole thing, they just pour it into the quivery and seal it and let it be. So all the fermentation takes place and then it continues to age for at least through the winter, uh, mm -hmm. in many cases for a year or two more in these gigantic terracotta vessels buried in the earth. And uh, they have a philosophy that when wine is first made, when the fermentation is complete, they have created a baby, and the baby needs to be nurtured by its mother, which is Mother Earth. Mm -hmm. So they have a, a, an earthen vessel sunk into the earth who then nurtures the wine for another year or two until it's ready to be presented to the world, ready to be drunk. And uh, that technique makes marvelous wines that in the, in the modern world are often referred to as amber wines or orange mm. wines. Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, they're filled with flavors of dried fruits and dried leaves and, and fall. I mean, just wonderful stuff. And they're just gorgeous to look at. Now, I'll be honest, they're a little... The first time you try it, it may it may be a little odd, for instance, to have a white wine with a lot of tannin in it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, once you adapt your palate, uh, you will just fall in love with them. Hmm. Is that where you started? Is that where your journey? Uh, I guess 
how how is it that you became the author of the books that I just mentioned? Uh, no, that's that's certainly not where I started. That's actually uh, where a lot of roads led over many years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started oh, a long time ago. Uh, I was in a tasting group just as an amateur uh, enjoying wine. And I had been uh, kind of a serious amateur, had been building a very small collection. But I was a business consultant. And I met a fellow who had started a wine import company in Miami, in fact. And he was having trouble running it, and he didn't have particularly great business acumen. So we had talked, and he asked me if I would step in as president of this small company of his Mm. to build it up. And so that was, well, 25 years ago, I guess. And uh, so I did, and we built a wonderful portfolio uh, that was focused heavily on Italy and Mm -hmm. also a lot from Austria, a lot from South Africa. Uh, So it was kind of an eclectic portfolio, but we found wonderful, wonderful wines and really built that little company up over the course of four or five years to something Mm -hmm. uh, quite marvelous. What's interesting about that is that a lot of people know Italy, you know, they know of Italian wines or at least Chianti, right? They know of that. Mm -hmm. Um, But South Africa has been, I would say, newer in terms of, you know, like the last 15 years, a region that more and more people are discovering that produces some. I mean, Italy is wine, you know, Mm -hmm. Italy is one gigantic vineyard. (laughs) really is from the uh, from the Alps to Sicily. Uh, there are vineyards in every part of Italy and wine is an integral part of the Italian scene of the Italian life. Uh, you know, if you're asked to set the table in Italy, uh, if you don't include a bottle of wine and some olive oil, you haven't properly set the table. <laughs> so it's just very much a part of the culture. Uh, South Africa is quite different uh, in that the first uh, wine from what we consider to be the best type of grape for wine, Vitis vinifera, was made in South Africa probably 300 years ago. Hmm. So there is this very long history. However, in the 19th and 20th centuries, uh, that was really disrupted terribly, both by apartheid hmm. and then by the fact that the government gave uh almost absolute control over the country's wineries to one big, powerful, politically connected cooperative. So what I like to say is that South Africa has been making fine wine for over 300 years, but they've really just been making very good wine for the last 15 or 20. Mm, Okay. And they are making some very good wine. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, they really are. There's been some really good Pinot Noirs for me personally that I've notice coming out of that region um, and Cab Sauvignon as well. Um, but Pinot Noir, that tends to be my go-to sort of everyday wine. A Pinot Noir uh-huh. tend to be the two. I like that pepperiness in both of those wines. But um, so you developed this company that was kind of a piece of, of your journey. What then took you to, I think I'll author these books. Huh. Well, after uh, <clears throat> building this company to a certain point, 
I became more interested in, I guess, in spreading the gospel, if I can put it that way, in, in training and teaching and helping people uh, to appreciate wine and to understand wine. It, it had become such an important part of my life. Uh, and there are so many facets to wine that I really wanted to share that with other people. Uh, and so I started doing more and more classes. Uh, I wrote a lot of wine lists for restaurants, and then I would have training mm -hmm. sessions for the staff and teach them about the wine and about presenting wine for people and what was important and what wasn't important, etc. And uh, actually, in many of these classes, it was kind of interesting that there would always be a couple of people who would come up to me after class and say, well, you know, I just love wine, but my, <laughs> my other, my significant other, my my husband, my boyfriend, my girlfriend, whoever it was, just won't open up to wine because they're so stuck on beer. They just <laughs> drink beer. Uh, and I really want to get them into wine. Can you help me out? And so that was actually the genesis of the first book, A Beer Drinker's Guide to Knowing and Enjoying Fine Wine. Okay. Uh, so that was a lot of fun to write. Uh, and the premise is simply that we've got two wonderful related beverages, related in terms that they are both fermented and they are both ancient. And to favor one over the other is fine, but to turn your nose up at one versus the other is ridiculous. Uh, they have very different flavor profiles uh, they're both marvelous in the right circumstance. So use what you've got as the foundation and learn about the other beverage. And in this case, it was learning about wine for people who already had some foundation in beer. Mm -hmm. So that was a lot of fun. I enjoyed that. And, uh, the book has done well, continues to be in print. Uh, so that was good. I, I liked it. And as far as the second book, what prompted that? There are dozens of <laughs> excellent wine books on the market, and almost all of them are focused on the specifics of wine, on the, the chemistry uh, of the soil or of the grape mm -hmm. or the process of fermentation or uh, how long they should be aged and what they should be aged in, et cetera, et cetera. So it's the very technical minutiae. Uh, that after a while, if you're really not into that, gets pretty overwhelming and, quite frankly, pretty boring. So rather than talk about that aspect of wine, I was more interested in helping people who really liked wine but didn't want to become wine fermentation scientists. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But they did want to know more about it and they wanted to become more familiar with it. I, I kind of liken this to... Uh, you know, we want to drive nice car. And if you if you're driving a certain kind of car, it's fun to try a different kind of car. And maybe you've got a British sports car or you've got, uh, you know, something, a luxury car, whatever. But you don't have to be the mechanic. Mm -hmm. Get under the hood and know how to dial it and tweak it and build it and so forth. And so many of the wine books really took you under the hood. And I wanted to write a book that was was more focused on the pleasure and the enjoyment and the experience of wine, which is really, uh, again, that was the genesis of 50 ways to love wine more. Mm -hmm. 
it really is a compendium of things that you can do, approaches that you can take, uh, explorations that you can make in the world of wine that will teach you something indirectly, uh, that will teach you uh, more of the beauty of wine or the history of wine or the joy of wine or the wonder of sharing wine with people who appreciate it or things along this line. So it's much more focused on wine appreciation uh, than on the specifics and the chemistry or, you know, things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Well, I love that you're t- kicking it to the adventure of wine appreciation. And one of the reasons personally, when I think about well, if anybody knows me, they know I can, when I'm making analogies around finance, I can very quickly bring it back to like a winery or a vineyard or, you know, the production of wine. And, you know, life is a journey. A vineyard is about the journey that the, that it goes through. Uh, A wine is about the journey that it goes through. There's little tweaks. You can have two very similar vineyards growing the same grape but the winemaker makes their little twist into it, right? However, their process is. And that's really life. And so when we think about like the adventure of finding that wine that you like, and I mentioned right at the very beginning, for me, this year, since we can't travel, I am using my taste buds to travel. (laughs) So I've been focusing on different regions of wine and uh, as I'm, you know, I'm located in the Finger Lakes area of, of Western New York. And so we have lots of wineries in this area, but it's a challenge to find a winery that's, that's um, you know, focused on Italian style wines. I did find one, but it is a challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, German was much easier. Germany was much easier. French was a little challenging, but I did find it. But once you start getting beyond those three regions, it's pretty challenging. And our local... Um, GCP store <laughs> helps me with that process <laughs> so I, as I uh, try to try to challenge my taste buds. And I'm a traditionally more, I tend to favor red wines more than white wines. Sure. Mm-hmm. Although I'm growing more fond of rosés, especially since more and more people are okay. experimenting with different kinds of grapes and blends with rosés. Mm-hmm. So I love that you've, you know, one of the reasons I launched this podcast was because people tend to be um, intimidated by finance and sometimes by wine. And so really both are just about finding what works for you. There's no like answer, like you should be drinking this wine. You find what works for you, or there's no answer to what budgeting tool you should have. You find what works for you. And like I said, I can make any (laughs) reference back to wine (laughs) when we're talking about finance. And that's why I really loved the fact that you related that this was about an adventure in wine appreciation. Well, Um, really hit the nail on the head in in saying that it's about you. Uh, and, And that's one thing that I'm very committed to is making people realize that the only palate that ultimately really matters is their palate. You know, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter what some critic says or someone writing in the paper uh, says about a particular wine. I mean, they may have taste that's in line with yours and they may not. Uh, and yes, there are, there are absolute uh, objective standards in wine. No one wants to drink a poorly made wine. <laughs> uh, but assuming that the wine is made with care and, and hopefully with love as well, 
uh, and it's made intelligently uh, because you happen to like one variety more than than another, and I happen to like the other one more than the first. Mm-hmm. It, it means nothing. It, it mm-hmm. has no bearing on who we are as human beings. It just says that we're individuals and that we're all unique. And I really encourage people to explore, to uh, to really challenge their palate because. If we're stuck always drinking the same eight or 10 or 20 varieties of great wine, there are thousands out there in the world and you're really denying yourself the opportunity to make wonderful discoveries. Mm-hmm. And those discoveries, whether it's in, well, whether it's in finance, whether you've discovered a new investment system or whatever, or mm-hmm. in wine, whether you've discovered a new flavor that, uh, or a new texture, a new weight that you love, uh, you know, that's really the the pure enjoyment aspect is that element of newness, of discovery of, oh, wow, this is amazing. I never thought of this before. I never tasted this before. And uh, that, that's really part of the journey as far as I'm concerned. Now, when you think about um, your journey into into wine as a general rule. I mean, I know why you were, you were brought into this company and you were, you helped it flourish, but was there something as a kid or was there, you know, was what drove you into this particular passion industry anyway? You mean who beat me as a child and made me drink? (laughs) No judgment here. (laughs) I thought you didn't want to hear stories like that. Uh, You know, it's interesting. I think that, again, talking about individual palates and individual taste, uh, I think I'm just wired to uh, appreciate the taste of wine more so than other tastes, perhaps more than the taste of beer, for instance. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, even when I was, uh, well, I won't say a kid in high school because we weren't supposed to be doing those things in high school, but... (laughs) When I started in college, a lot of my friends were, you know, devoted beer drinkers. I mean, just dedicated, devoted beer drinkers. But I always enjoyed wine more than beer. It, it just spoke to me somehow. I don't know if it was that my palate was more attuned to fruit as opposed mm-hmm. to grains. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I just always loved wine. And, uh, you know, I remember even in college, I would have a bunch of friends come over and cook the only thing I knew how to cook, which was spaghetti. Uh, and then I would, you know, get a, a big jar of sauce and try to doctor it up like it was my own uh, and then serve a great big jug of red wine. Uh, I just liked the uh, I like the flavor. I like the feel. I guess I like the high of it, whatever. But I was always uh, amenable to uh to wine, to the pleasure of wine. And like going back to those years in college, you know, would you have guessed that this was where you, where your career would take you? Like going to college would take you? No, no, not at all. Uh, No, I didn't. Uh, And and yet what's interesting, you know, in looking back at those times uh, when I was a sophomore in college, Uh, I went to South America uh, by myself. Uh, I had had the opportunity between my senior year of high school and and my uh, freshman year of college to to go to Peru, to go to Panama and Peru uh, in 
as part of the uh, Civil Air Patrol, which was something I was uh, involved in as a kid. I loved flying and aviation. Uh, and so a couple of years later, I had another chance to go and I saved my saved my coins and uh, bought myself a plane ticket. <laughs> and, uh, you know, these were the days when people did things like that. And I remember uh, meeting this this guy in uh, Colombia, and we were talking, and he was telling me about Chile, and he mentioned that Chile made really good wine. Mm -hmm. So I immediately said, "Well, let's go get some." So, <laughs> you know, one of the very first things I did, uh, even then, was that I went out and I I bought a very nice bottle of Chilean wine, which at the time was probably you know, two dollars or something, but uh, nonetheless, it, it, I was always oriented toward that. So uh, I guess it's uh, in the stars. So I mean, it, that's an area, another area that um, I don't, I don't know if a lot of people think of it, but I, I do tend to like some of the wines coming out of that, and Argentina as well, different, different area, but Argentina. Uh, I discovered probably, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago at this point in time, uh, Malbec, right? And and realized that it used to be a wine that was used for blending. But then somehow people were like, hey, this isn't so bad just by itself. You know, that's yeah. that's kind of the journey that we talk about. In fact, I, I think I read on your website, one of the things that I um, picked up was that uh, you, and I think it was in your 50 ways to love wine more. You actually talk about discovering fabulous bargain wines from around the world. And I recall that there were uh, some areas when I glanced through it that I'm like, I, I have to try some stuff from there, but it made me think about, about, about um, some of the regions in the U S too, that aren't so well known like Michigan and Texas and Virginia. Those aren't States that a lot of people think of, wine coming out of them and even Pennsylvania is starting to do some pretty neat stuff. No, it's, uh, but, it's, yeah, it's quite interesting the way the U.S. is developing a, a non-California wine culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I love uh, one of the comments that you made about getting beyond the cork versus screw cap conundrum. <laughs> Uh, that's, we learned, uh, through a wine master friend of ours that the wine actually preserves a lot of times better with a screw cap. So don't let that be a deterrent from, um, purchasing, you know, don't let that be like, oh, well, that's not as good as something with a cork. Cause many of the corks now are synthetic is what he said. So, yeah, no, that the, the closure debates are. Are, are kind of resolved. Um, there was a period of time when an unacceptably high percentage of corks were faulty. And by unacceptably high, I'm talking maybe 8%, 9%, mm. something like that. But if you bought a case of wine, that meant one of the bottles was probably yeah. going to be bad. So that's relatively unacceptable. Uh, and so the scientists of the world jumped on this and started developing synthetic corks and uh, screw cap closures and all kinds of things. But at the same time, of course, the scientists in Spain and Portugal started uh, figuring out how to prevent this, uh, this problem from erupting in corks because, of course, they 
produce most of the world's cork, and it's a fairly important industry for them. So we're at a state now where uh, corked wine, uh, wine that's been fouled because of a uh, fungus growing in the cork, mm-hmm. is greatly reduced. You know, whereas, as I say, a number of years ago, maybe 8% of it uh, was bad. Now, I would say less than 1%. So corks are much more reliable. Mm-hmm. At the same time, as, as corks were being improved, screw caps were being improved as well. And the screw caps are uh, certainly uh, acceptable anywhere. Uh, in fact, in some countries, in New Zealand, I think everybody screw caps everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Australia, lots of wines are screw caps. Mm-hmm. Uh, even in Bordeaux, some prestigious uh, uh, Bordelais houses uh, are experimenting with uh, closing half of their vintage in screw cap and the other half with cork. So, yeah, a screw cap shouldn't... Uh, shouldn't frighten anyone off, nor should a court, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the other things that I liked about the book, um, and then we can kind of move on, but I just wanted to to point out in case people are, are interested in, you know, why it is that we're talking But one of the other things that I really liked about the book was that um, for those that are, are about journeys and adventure, you've actually made some recommendations on where people can go on vacation. That's, sort of focused on wine. And one of the, one of my favorite parts was how you could actually volunteer um, during those peak seasons where they need people and incorporate that into a vacation, a working vacation, but a vacation. (laughs) Well, that's, that's tremendous fun. And uh, it's uh, very educational. It gives you an inside look uh, at how wine is made. Uh, I don't know what the status of all that's going to be now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the virus uh, sweeping through things, and in California and Oregon and Washington, mm-hmm. our three big wine states, fire is wiping out what the virus yeah. is. So yeah. it's a pretty terrible time for uh, vineyards in the western U.S. right now. But when we can travel... <laughs> Yeah. Again, uh, the same situation exists in wineries all over the world. So if you really want to find out about wine and how it's made and develop some wonderful uh, friendships, uh, a very unique camaraderie, then, yeah, go volunteer to it's called working crush. Go volunteer to work crush somewhere. Uh, And most wineries will or many wineries will actually put you up. Uh, and feed you. So it, it's kind of cool. You're, you're with a crew of people who could be, you know, a college student across the conveyor belt from you and a, a PhD uh, professor taking a sabbatical next to you and a winemaker's a daughter from <laughs> Australia on the other side, and you're all working together uh, sorting grapes and just getting to know each other and having a wonderful time and putting in very, very long hours. Uh, and then at the end of the day, the winery sits everyone down at a big communal table and have a wonderful feast and a, usually a couple bottles of wine to boot. Uh, it, it's really a great experience. And I hope one that uh, people will be able to participate again in. Mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, one of the things we, we often talk about here is, you know, around finance, right? So this is a way uh, to 
explore a passion that you might have potentially on somebody's dime or at least partially on somebody's dime. So that's my, that was one of the reasons why I was like, I need to look into this because Brett and I often do, I mean, we really do travel around some of those kinds of things whenever we, one of the, one of the trips that we were hoping to make this year that would have been around uh, wine and beer was out to Oregon. So um, we, we were really hoping to get out there and explore the, the region. Uh, My husband grows hops here in in New York and and does yeah. does make some of his own beer, but very much enjoys wine as, as I do. And so we wanted to really explore that area, take a 10 day trip and go out and explore that area in detail and try to find those little hidden gems. Now, after reading portions of your book, I'm like, well, maybe when we do book it, we could actually do it around harvest, and yeah. have a portion of it paid for. Yeah. It's always, always looking to save a dime and enjoy myself at the same time. So. Well, it, it used to be, again, you know, we live in a, in a brave new world or a frightening new world or whatever it is. We live in a very new world. Mm-hmm. Uh, it used to be that wineries would start uh, advertising uh, for crush help for interns, volunteers, whatever, uh, fairly early in the year. Uh, like February or March, mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. help who would come out and spend, uh, you know, preferably three or four weeks uh, at the at harvest season. But if you were going to Oregon, uh, not only could you enjoy and indulge in your passion for wine, and most certainly your passion for Pinot Noir. <laughs> uh huh. <laughs> Those are just legendary, and they're mag- magnificent. Uh, but also uh, get into the Yakima Valley and there are incredible hops growing mm-hmm. as well. So you'd yeah. both be in, uh, in your own version of hog heaven. <laughs> yeah, that was sort of the plan. Uh, and it, at some point in time, I'm sure we will do it. We just have to figure out when it's safe. You know, it's for me because, I, you know, I've worked most of the summer remotely as it is. And our firm is so virtual anyways that and I spend half my year in Florida and half my year in New York. And, you know, we have an office in Oklahoma and one of our planners is in Fort Collins. So it's not unusual for me to be traveling. So for us, you know, to be able to take, go someplace like that, as long as I can still somewhat check in and meet with clients when I need to and that sort of thing. They're so used to this virtual environment that we're able to go for a little bit longer periods of time to explore and, and volunteer, quote unquote, volunteer or, or work for food and board. You know, it's um, it's about that journey. I, I want to shift gears just a little bit and ask you some questions about, you know, what when you think back to uh, what has driven you in the direction that you're at right now, is there any one or two or three particular um, points that you can, I guess, are really accentuated that have helped you form your, your vineyard per se, or are there books that you've read that have really been a huge impact in your life? Hmm. (laughs) Well, my my journey in wine has certainly evolved. Uh, as I well, that's true of everybody, right? I mean, I typically like most people start out with that sweet wine and then evolve, but some people stay with sweet wine, and there's nothing wrong with that. So, no, no, there's nothing wrong with that at all. And I was referring more to my journey as a 
you know, as a, as a vocation. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, in that professionally, I began as an importer and distributor. And that was a wonderful, wonderful period of time. I, uh, you know, traveled to Europe and, and visited uh, dozens of wineries and got to know uh, fabulous people and got to personally visit uh, wonderful regions and taste magnificent foods and wines and so forth. Uh, then as I moved into uh, kind of a phase that I alluded to where I was more interested or became interested in education and teaching and sharing, uh, so I went through that process for quite some time as well. Uh, I became more of a, an educator and consultant. So I worked with a lot of people, uh, teaching them about wine and uh, as it was utilized, perhaps in their restaurant or in their collection or whatever. Uh, and then I realized that I could reach more people and also satisfy a personal need, which I think mm-hmm. we're all entitled to do and, and should pay attention to, by writing. I mean, I, I just mm-hmm. love to write. I enjoy it and find great satisfaction. It challenges me, but uh, it's very rewarding as well. So I moved more exclusively into writing, which interestingly opened up my time more so that I could continue traveling and visiting other wine regions. Again, you mentioned uh, or we both mentioned Chile and Argentina mm-hmm. and um, some of the regions in uh, Canada, very close to you, the Niagara Bench area. Oh, yeah, yeah. Wonderful yeah. stuff up there, just wonderful. And, and Finger Lakes, fabulous uh, wines in the Finger Lakes also. Uh, and then, uh, you know, France and Champagne and Bordeaux and Italy. And I mean, so I've had a, a wonderful opportunity to visit and revisit wine regions around the world. And uh, so that was kind of a normal evolution. Uh, in terms of, you mentioned books uh, specifically, and I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm going to refer to one. Uh, now, I have read, I don't know, hundreds of wine books, and you know, many of them are excellent, and many of them are dry, and <laughs> aren't, and but one book that really kind of rocked me, if you will, is a book called Ancient Wine. And it's written by a professor uh, at the University of Pennsylvania, Patrick McGovern. And he's probably the world's leading authority on ancient wines and ancient fermented beverages. So whenever you read a news story that uh, says, oh, world's oldest wine facility discovered in Armenia or ancient wine uncovered on the island of Crete or something. <laughs> He's the guy that they always send the samples to. He's the guy who does the analysis. He's developed uh, these analyses. Uh, and so he is the go-to guy. And he's a wonderful, delightful man as well. Uh, and I've had the uh, pleasure of meeting him and spending time with him uh, on top of that. But in his book, Ancient Wine, he talks about, again, the development of wine and uh, of domestication of grapes and the development of winemaking, which all, of course, occurred kind of in the northern crescent of the fertile crescent, if you will. So around the countries of Georgia 
and uh, Turkey, Eastern Turkey, and all of Georgia and Armenia. That, that's really where grapes were first made into wine. Uh, and we're talking, you know, six, 7,000 BC. So he put it in a way that just really struck me one day. I was reading, and he said, essentially, that winemaking was a fully realized, uh, mature practice with rules and norms and techniques and so forth, some 3,000 years before the <laughs> writing. Now think about that, 3,000 years before the advent of writing. <laughs> and writing, as we know, was invented about 3,500 B.C. in Mesopotamia. And by the time writing was invented, wine was an old story. I mean, that just amazed me to think that it's been part of the human experience for that long and uh, how <laughs> widespread it is, how, how uh, much of an integral part of the human experience wine is, you know, and, and you, you realize that it's part of history and it's part of art and it's part of religion and it's part of medicine and it's part of science and uh, you know, just tremendously uh, multifaceted. Uh, it, you know, it, it's a tapestry uh, whose threads are interwoven into everything. Mm -hmm. uh, really quite amazing. Quite amazing to take that, you know, macro view of it. Well, as you were talking, I was chuckling because I'm thinking, you're darn right, it's part of medicine. <laughs> it's part of mental health some days. <laughs> there you go. That's right. <laughs> so, I mean, that, because I think, again, all of us have those influences that, that really craft us, right, and really point us in a particular direction, even though at the time we might not necessarily recognize it is pointing us in that direction. Sure. So I think when we can take a step back and look at that, because it might, you know, somebody who's listening might say, Oh, I didn't realize that and want to explore a particular area and who knows where it can take them in their career, their life or whatever it might be. Um, many, as you mentioned earlier, many of the areas out West, uh, Oregon, Washington, California, even Colorado are experiencing some pretty intense, um, issues, not just the fires, which are horrible in and of themselves, but even just having the proper staff to be able to maintain the energy that it takes for harvest, which in some cases is coming up. And here, here in New York, they actually started harvest, I think about two or three weeks ago, which was really early this year, but we had a super, super dry, hot summer yep. and things were ready um, just you know, early, uh, that that's a big, a big challenge. Are you seeing other challenges for the wine industry as a whole from an agricultural, from a regulatory, what challenges are you seeing in general? Well, I mean, climate change is most certainly a challenge. Uh, it's a major challenge and it's going to cause a major shift in the industry. Uh, if you have anyone who doesn't want to admit to climate change, just have them go talk to a wine grower anywhere. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, you mentioned that in the Finger Lakes, they were picking earlier. Uh, you can talk to French uh, vignerons, and they will tell you that when they were children, uh, you know, dad and grandpa used to harvest, uh, you know, on October 20th. 
Mm-hmm. Now uh, that's gotten progressively earlier, and now they're harvesting on September 1st instead yeah. of October 20th. And, uh, you know, in some cases they're harvesting in August. I mean, just unheard of. You know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, uh, the grapes would have still been green then. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that really is changing things. And in one regard, it's making regions that have been moderate uh, warm climate regions. Napa is very much in that category. Uh, Napa is a, a region that has depended on Cabernet uh, for the most part. That's really been its calling card and Chardonnay. Uh, it's soon probably going to be too hot to grow those effectively. Uh, or to come up with, you know, the quality of fruit that they have had in the past just because of global warming. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, you look at places like uh, England. Well, England for hundreds of years hasn't been able to grow wine grapes at all. It's just too cold and and, uh, the weather has not been amenable to that. And now uh, in southwest England, there's a thriving winery scene. Uh, It's still chilly, so they're getting high acid grapes and they're making, for the most part, some really wonderful sparkling wine uh, that's competing with champagnes. So Mm. that's a new wine region. Uh, Some wine regions are just going to, uh, you know, have to shift and adapt. And as far as as far as other things, you know, I think it's good to understand that in the wine world, there are kind of there's kind of a, a single big division. And that is that on one hand, you have what I refer to as factory wines. So these are wineries that produce millions of cases of wine every year. I mean, literally millions of cases. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, uh, their winery looks, you know, essentially like a refinery from the outside. It's, you know, huge steel tanks and steel piping running everywhere. And, it's all computer controlled and, you know, they're mixing in grapes from here, there and everywhere. And they just have to get enough quantity. Uh, the grapes are grown uh, for maximum uh, quantity, uh, which, of course, cuts down on the quality. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of have that. And those are, you know, they're big names. They're the names you see on the supermarket shelf, (laughs) Uh, the names that you've seen for the past 20 years, the names that you see on every supermarket shelf, every single one. Uh, Now, those wines are drinkable, certainly, and they may Mm -hmm. be enjoyable, but they don't have much in the way of personality. You know, there's nothing compelling about them. They're just they're fermented grape juice. Well, that goes back to my comment initially of I like to find those boutique, you know, little places that are unknown that you aren't going to find on the grocery store shelf or even in the the, the liquor store. I like to or maybe you will, but it's in very limited quantity. It's all about, you know, I I don't have a lot of other hobbies, really. I work a lot. And when I have time to explore something it's let's hop in the car and go find a small little winery that we've never heard of sure and it could be when i'm in florida i mean i don't really haven't really i'll be honest with you other than um one winery over in St. Augustine. I haven't really found too many in California and Florida that I particularly would go back to. 
but it's still about the journey. And if I can't find, you know, if, if, if it's not that, then it's going to like, um, total wines down in Florida or even for you. Okay. Uh, I think one of the wonderful resources in the wine industry is a wine retailer who has a passion for wine. So the idea really is to find a wine shop that is staffed by people who love mm, wine. Yeah, the little wineries or the little wine shops, yeah. The little, the little shops, or they may not be so little in some cases. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, but, little in, in comparison to like total wine or something right, like exactly. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, go in and talk to the people in there. Say, look, you know, I, I'm really a fan of Pinot Noir, but I'm also a fan of exploring. Uh, you know, can you direct me to something? I'm not interested in another factory wine or, <laughs> you know, a big producer. I'm just looking for something unique and exciting. And those people know what they're talking about if you mm-hmm. give them a chance. You betcha. We, um, we went to uh, Total Wine last fall or last spring early in the spring before everything got shut down. And I was looking particular for a Lemberger mm-hmm. and um, <laughs> they had no clue. So I said, well, how about a Blafrancaish? That's another, you know, they, they're, they, ha- you know, that I walked, I actually walked out of a total wine with nothing. I was just so <laughs> disgusted. <laughs> like, all right, I'll just call up. Um, I called up a couple wineries from New York state and said, can you ship me some stuff? Because I, I could get a Lemberger and a, uh, you know, or one winery calls it Belfranco, the other is Lemberger, same general region that they come from different countries. But, um, yeah, it was, it was frustrating to me where, you know, when you went a lot of those quote unquote smaller, you know, places, if you say to them, I'm looking for this and they don't have it, they'll, ask for a recommendation and say, well, I can get it for you. Mm-hmm. Yep. They can be a great resource. I mean, as much as you're traveling, I, I don't know how much you're traveling now, but you're not much, but yeah. All right. You're still traveling some, somewhat. Yeah. Yeah. And even if you're not where you, where you are, uh, you know, really develop that as a resource, find a, yeah. find a wine shop in every town you go to, or find a, <laughs> a, a, a retailer who really has a passion for wine and uh, I'm telling you, she can be a marvelous uh, resource. Uh, it's just so much fun to talk to someone else who's as into it as you are. And, you know, these people, they taste everything in the store. Many of them are working on advanced certification. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. If you come in open-minded and, and willing to listen, they will just turn into geeks right in front of you mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, direct you to some really interesting and unusual things. I, uh, I, that is, that is my, uh, co-retirement job. <laughs> so I became, uh, this year I became a member of the American wine society so that I could seek out some additional education, mm-hmm. uh, just because when I, uh, start to slow down in running my practice many years down the road, I know myself, I'm, you know, I don't idle well. So I'm like, hmm, you know, I love wine. So maybe I could explore uh, working part time, doing something around wine or being more educated about wine. So I actually joined um, the American Wine Society to take some of the classes that they offer just to do that. <laughs> but that's right, that's right. Um, so qu- another quick question that I love, I guess, two final questions. Um, so we so appreciate how much time you've given us today. But two additional questions that we like to sort of end the podcast with is, Number one, what is your definition of success? Hmm. 
Uh, <clears throat> I'm going to, uh, I, I guess I would answer that by sharing my overall philosophy of life with you, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is simply to leave the world a slightly better place than it was when you got here. Mm. To have some kind of positive effect or more positive than negative, uh, you know, to have to have uh, your accounts read that way. So I think that's really success. If you can, uh, you know, influence a few people to do something that uh, is, is a, the right decision for them that works out for them, or if you can uh, tamp down some anger or negativity uh, somewhere else, or if you can just help share and explore and, and uh, educate, uh, whatever. I think that really, uh, in the end, is what success is all about. What a lovely definition. Um, and then the final uh, section or final question that we have, this is sort of what we call our Nourish Your Vine section of the podcast. We take just a few minutes for our guests to provide listeners with maybe the number one financial lesson that they've learned in their lives. Oh, boy. <laughs> um, well, I'll give you I'll give you a couple because one is so obvious, and that is uh, spend less than you make. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's always a good rule of thumb and uh, can be difficult for especially for we Americans to follow on occasion. But uh, spend less than you can make. Beyond that, understand the place that finances and financial security play in your life. And what I mean by that is that if you're involved in something that is generating income but making you unhappy, the income isn't worth it. You know, we only get one shot here. And if you're waking up every morning with a little shudder because you've got to go to work that day and do something that you just really would rather not be doing, regardless of how much income it's generating for you. It's just not the right thing. It's not an intelligent use of your time on earth. Uh, On the other hand, if you wake up every day, you know, with a smile in your heart and you can't wait to get at it, whatever it is, and you're excited about the new opportunity and the new day and and you've been thinking about something and you're going to jump on it that day, uh, you know, regardless of the financial reward, I think that's where you should be putting your your focus. Yeah. Do you know during this pandemic, the number one thing um, besides the extra vacation cash cushion that we talk to clients about that they're not using is many of our clients are talk that are still working are talking about career changes. If it hasn't done anything for a lot of people, it's made them realize. Um, that maybe, you know, they've just been going through the cog mm-hmm. and the fact that that this has slowed them down just a little bit. And they've realized that perhaps this isn't the field or company or whatever um, that they really want to be in. That's been yeah. probably tied with the, you know, the the number one question that we're ta- our number one topic that we're talking to our clients well, about. So it's interesting that you bring that up. When you find the right thing for you, that not only will you feel so much happier and so much more content, but you'll have, it'll increase your curiosity. It'll, it, it'll stimulate your curiosity. It'll increase your excitement. 
and the money will come. Mm-hmm. The money will come. Uh, you know, I mean, I don't mean that in a flippant way, but things will take care of themselves. So, uh, you know, again, don't spend more than you than you're making, and uh, make your heart happy. You know, your family will be happier. You'll be happier. You'll probably live longer, and you'll probably have a much richer. Uh, panoply of experiences to see you through these days. Well, Jim, we want to say thank you again so much. How can people find your book? Um, you know, where, I mean, we have your website, we'll post in our show notes, but but where can people find, if they are interested in reading it, where can they find your book and where can they find out more about you? All right. Well, uh, the books are available, obviously, on Amazon. Or you can also go to the publisher, crosstownpublishing.com, and uh, the books are available there as well. Uh, yeah, my website is jimlochran.com. If you uh, anyone wants to shoot me a question or a comment there, I'd be happy to respond to, to anybody. And, uh, you know, other than that, I wish everyone uh, a taste of something wonderful. Well, again, thank you so much. I as well wish everybody a taste of something wonderful. Um, We hope that you've enjoyed this episode of Wine and Dime. And let's see, Jim, if I can pronounce it correctly. So it's Jim Lochran. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I got that right this time. We appreciate your time. Please uh, tell us what you think of this podcast. If you want to hear more of episodes like this, follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook. We'd love to hear from you. And we'd love to hear if you love Jim's book. Thank you, everybody. And we hope you have a wonderful day. And that will about do it for today's episode of Wine and Dime. You can contact Amy through the website, www.rootedpg.com or amy at rootedpg.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at rootedpg for the latest news. And if you have any questions, comments, or topics you would like to hear about, feel free to let us know. And don't forget to rate and subscribe the show wherever you get your podcasts. And again, thank you for listening and be sure to tune in next time.